Hello and welcome to episode 240 of the Greater Than Code podcast. My name is Coraline Ada MK. I'm very happy to be with you here today. And I'm also really happy to be here with my great friend, Jamie Hampton. Thanks, Coraline. I'm glad to be on the show with you too. And I'm also here with my great friend, Jacob Stobel. Oh, hello. And I'm going to introduce our guest. Amelia Winger Bearskin is an artist and technologist who creates playful work with XR, VR, AI, AR, AV, and other esoteric systems of story and code. Amelia is the founder and host of Wampum.Code's podcast and the stupidhackathon.com. She is a senior technical training consultant for Contentful and host of the Contentful plus Algolia developer podcast DreamStacks. She is working on ethics-based dependencies for software development as a Mozilla fellow embedded at the MIT Co-Creation Studio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. You all are some of my favorite people, so I'm excited to well, chat you on record. <laughs> and today's going to be very technical. We're going to ask you some very technical questions about XR, VR, AI, AR, AV. And, uh, That's a lot of letters. XP. Everything. Yeah. Write a function. (laughs) Coding for you. Yeah. Let's crack it. (laughs) And Amelia, just on a personal level, I'm so happy to have you here. We've, uh, you and I have talked before. Um, We're both involved in ethical stories, and I just am such an admirer of your work. I'm I'm so happy to have this conversation in public with you today. Oh, back at you, Coraline. I, I love Ethical Source, and I'm, I've been so excited uh, to join your your team of rebels and, and exciting thinkers and dreamers. So I'm really excited to be here with you and in community with you. So, uh, Amelia, I first became aware of your work through your Wampum Codes project that you did. Well, it's an ongoing project, but I guess you started it um, with the Mozilla Fellowship. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's uh, it's really fascinating. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, when I started my Mozilla Fellowship um, embedded at the MIT co-creation studio, it was actually pre-pandemic. So it was right, right, but not very much so. It was only a couple of months. We got to go to London and meet each other. And I got to hang out a little bit at at MIT with the co-creation fellows. And I'm the first like full-time fellow at the MIT co-creation studio, which is a really cool studio, uh, you know, imagined and led by Kat Sizak, who's an incredible transmedia storyteller, an inspiring human that I get to be in collaboration with there. And so for my for Wampum.codes as an ethical framework for software development, you know, we had imagined a lot of things. <laughs> and then the pandemic hit and I wasn't able to sort of be, you know, as close to them as as I was. I also moved from New York to San Francisco. So it was kind of like before I thought I was going to be New York to Boston pretty, you know, regularly on the train and then moved to California. And that's when I decided to have the co-creation portion of wampum.codes exist as a podcast. So rather than flying to different um, spaces and meeting with friends and technologists on reservations who are indigenous across um, North America, I was like, okay, well, let's do this via Zoom call as a podcast, as many people kind of moved to different online formats during the pandemic. And that's how the wampum.codes podcast was born is I wanted to research because if you're going to create an ethical framework for software development based on indigenous values of co-creation, you need to do it in co-creation with those people. And I had initially planned to fly all of them to MIT and have this big conference and everything. But instead, I got to have weekly conversations with indigenous people who are using technology in creative ways to make positive impact in their communities. And then we still did a, a big conference at MIT, but virtually. And actually, a lot more people were able to participate in it that way. Big surprise, right? All of us who are kind of internet natives are, are, are un, unsurprised that you have a lot of accessibility there. And so then that became the supergroup episode of wampum.codes where we had sort of everyone who was going to be there physically at MIT. And then I was able to, you know, distribute rather than using those funds to fly everyone to MIT, distribute those to all the different people who are on the podcast and just have weekly conversations um, with each of these people. I guess the technology projects range and, you know, I welcome anyone to go to Wampum is W-A-M-P-U-M dot codes, C-O-D-E-S. If you want to listen to the podcast, you can kind of go on Buzzsprout, but it's able to be found on, um, you know, Spotify or Apple Pod, anywhere you find a podcast, we have RSS, you know, feeds there. You know, if you 
go through the episodes, it, it varies where each of the indigenous people are coming from. Like there's an incredible actress on there, um, Morningstar Angeline, and she is an incredible advocate and activist for like the Albuquerque drag scene and also um, does really incredible art uh, installations and happenings and works in VR. But she's also the voice of the local area population in uh, Red Dead Redemption, one of my favorite games. <laughs> and so it's really interesting that she kind of crosses all of these different media. Then, then we have another person, um, Joey Cliff, who is a comedian who's an indigenous comedian and one and the first indigenous person to be on the that and I'm going to probably say this wrong but the house comedy team of UCB in LA I, I think they call it the house like the house comedy team and so he actually the interesting way that he uses technology is he created the largest Facebook group of comedians ever and it's the comedians with cats Facebook group <laughs> Like, I would just love that, like, you know, he has this and then he creates all this comedy through that Facebook group. So that's kind of an interesting way that comedy kind of becomes its own scene through this social media network, all based around cats. I think that's pretty amazing that indigenous person is like kind of grounded everybody in our deep love of animals. Um, and he does a lot of really great activist work. And he's also a writer of a couple of different television shows right now and one of them is the first all indigenous writers room uh, ever in Hollywood and so he's just he's doing really incredible things but I love his use of technology as this cast group <laughs> on Facebook and then you have Rue Desalyn George Warren who's creating an app with children um, he's part of Catawba Nation and the app is around language preservation and language education of Catawba language but it's kind of the fun thing that we talk about on the episode is you know, there's some words that don't exist in Catawba language, and it's because they're a last truly like immersed indigenous speaker of Catawba language passed away in the 80s. And so anything that wasn't created up until the 80s didn't sort of have like an official name. But that doesn't mean that the language is dead. It's alive and it's alive on, on the tongue of every you know child that's learning and person that's living. But what it does mean is those children get to name some of these things. They get to name what a cell phone is. They get to name, you know, all these fun things. And one of the children said, we should name cell phones rock hands. And he's like, oh, really? That's great. Why is that? You know, the, the, the word for rock and the word for hands in Catawba. And he said, well, because it, it's made of rocks and minerals and we hold it in our hands. And I thought that was really beautiful. So those are the kind of the examples of how um, each of these different awesome technologists, indigenous leaders are using technology um, in creative ways. And so from that, all those conversations really contribute to the framework that I help to, you know, uh, organize and turn into a workshop and, and writings around an ethical framework for software development. Those conversations are really key and important to it because I need to learn how are people making change with technology because that really will contribute to the kind of guidelines that we hope people can bring out in the process of creating an ethical framework for software development and value-based dependencies. So we have one question for you that you may be expecting uh, already because we warn our guests about it. And that question is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Oh, that's a, a, an excellent question. And, you know, I'm kind of cheating because I, I once was asked this question at Stephanie Dinkins um, AI dinner in New York. And I just said the first thing that came to my head because like I wasn't expecting it. And the longer I think about it, the first time I said it, I said, wow, that's really stupid. I mean, like, why'd you say that? Well, it's because the first thing that came to my head. But then the longer I sit with it, the more I'm like, I think it's true. So I'm just going to say it again, as if it's the first time, um, which is I think my superpower is being invited to cool parties. Um <laughs> <laughs> that's a great superpower yeah and how I acquired it I think you just have to have cool friends right and then those friends invite you to cool parties and it's worked out for me so far because sometimes their parties are in Dharmashala hanging out with the Dalai Lama sometimes their parties are doing some weird art show in New York. And sometimes their parties are, you know, awesome powwows that have been going on for hundreds of years. And so I think that's kind of the best way I want to live my life. So that's my superpower. I love that. I just wanted to say that I don't think that's a stupid superpower at all. I think it's a beautiful superpower. I'm kind of jealous of that superpower, honestly. I think the last party I had, the big, important, exciting thing was like red velvet cupcakes. Ooh, so, that's so. I don't know. You have red velvet cupcakes on the one hand, the Dalai Lama on the other hand. That's a tough <laughs> choice to make, really. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously during quarantine, I feel like very, you know, like definitely not had my superpower active in a while. So maybe I'm in like my cave of solitude, right? <laughs> you know, like definitely, it's been it's been a tough year for those of us who that's our only superpower. But you know, I definitely been invited to a lot of Zoom parties. Let me tell you, I've I've led a lot of Among Us, you know, things, and I've been the one to organize a lot of uh, like Zoom. It, uh, look, we all are like Zoom fatigued, right? But I've been organizing what I hope could be something interesting. I started this thing called no-funding.com as like a virtual party where we could talk about, I don't know, it's supposed to be kind of like an artist support group where we talk about ways that we can support each other outside of like gatekeeping and traditional funding avenues. But honestly, it's like if you didn't need any funding and you didn't want any funding and you just wanted to be punk rock and talk about our art and how we can help each other, that's the space we do it. And we ended up getting into like some esoteric conversations we talk a lot about ethics and the worlds that we want to build that have a community focus, but we also just kind of, we'll talk about creative ideas to feed our soul. Like, Hey, why don't we write poems today? And let's somebody in the group knows how to teach us how to write poems. Someone might know something about an artist and teaches us something. So it's definitely more like an artist support group, but with the model of not like our, our motto is no striving, no hustling. So <laughs> that's us. No-funding.com. Join us every week. <laughs> One of, the, uh, one of the things that really interested me or interests me about your work, Amelia, almost everything you said in terms of the things you're doing have a very strong community focus. And uh, as someone who came up in a very white Western technology environment where uh, most of most of what happens is developer tooling and uh, most of it is going to big companies in San Francisco. I think it's really interesting that people who are outside of that bubble seem to have stronger, especially people in, in different parts of the world or indigenous cultures that are often ignored or, or excluded, but you're doing community work. And I see a lot of, a lot of those non-white Western, what am I trying to say? That's kind of unique in a way, or it's kind of different from how technology is usually thought of in the U.S. especially. I don't know where to go with that. I am so sorry. I just think that's so fascinating and so different. And uh, that's something I want to learn about. Yeah, you know, and I think it's absolutely everything you said about technology is true. And it, it also is true for the art world, too, which I was, you know, I came actually from a background of performance. My mom was growing up was a traditional storyteller for our tribe or Seneca Cayuga Nation of Oklahoma Deer Clan. And being a storyteller is something like being a politician, a historian, a performance artist, an actor, a writer, right? Like an educator. It's kind of this combination because you need to be given the stories from elders. They have to trust you. So you have to be kind of like a politician or a leader. Um, and you're really required to make sure that the stories that you tell are relevant and significant for your current generation. You're taking information from previous generations. You're preserving it and sharing it with your current generation so that it will have positive impact on the generations to come. But it has to be relevant. So you cannot tell it the same way that an elder gave it to you. It's, it's the requirement is like, I'm giving you this story for you to make it new and relevant for your generation. And each audience you meet with, it has to be relevant. And our storytelling is embedded in multimedia. It's, you know, obviously spoken word stories. It has music. It has patterns. It has art. It has pottery. It has beadwork. Like all of these things reinforce the stories. And so when my mom would travel around, her her superpower is being that leader, historian, educator. She has that voice that as soon as she says, hello, I would like to tell you a story today. Every person in the whole room sits down. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how she, that's her superpower is like, she can just not even with a mic and she has a quiet voice. She can just be like, hello. And everyone just sits down, you know, she's like, I'm going to tell you a story. It's that incredible storyteller voice. And then I would perform the songs and the music with her since she's not a musician or a musical person at all. And, but she like knows the songs and knows, okay, this is the story that has this song that goes with it. So I would be like the musical one. And then I became an opera singer at uh, 15. I went to the Eastman conservatory of music at, at a kind of a young age and became a professional opera singer at a, at a young age. And so I came from a performance background and then once my work became so weird in the sense of I had so much coding involved and projections and video and, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd and I've been like a, you know, like a self-taught coder since I was very young. And since my work became more integrated with multimedia, 
people were like, you're not really an opera person anymore or a director of new opera. You're kind of an, a multimedia artist. And so that title was somewhat thrust upon me. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to go get my master's degree, my MFA in art. And once I went to art school, they like showed me my studio and then they like kind of like lock you in there. They close the door and then you're supposed to live in your studio. And I would pop my head out and like, hey, everybody, what are we doing? They're like, go away. We're, you know, like go back in your studio. We are all in our studios, heads down. And then I said, oh, well, let's collaborate. No one wanted to collaborate with me. The only people in the entire like above me year, below me year, my same year that wanted to collaborate with me were indigenous people. Interesting. <laughs> and so we all wanted to collaborate and start making things together. And our professors were like, we're not even going to consider that for your grades or for your thesis or for that. That doesn't count. That doesn't even exist. If you made it with another person, it doesn't even exist. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like the whole entire world doesn't work like that when it comes to the way that most people, like most media we consume isn't created that way. The only exception really is more like the solitary artist which also doesn't always work that way either. Like when you go and see things in a museum and it has one person's name under it, there's a thousand names they're not mentioning, right? And when we see a film, we see the director, but we see the, we see the thousands of names come over us uh, with the credits. Um, when we go to a play, we open that cast book and we see all of those names that are behind that, that object. So it's really the art world and the tech technology world overlap in that that myth of the solitary genius it's total myth but they perpetuate it and so i was like i definitely had a crisis when i went into the art world and then again as you know as i've continued my journey throughout tech where i'm like it's not true that one person has made these things but we believe that we believe that that's how things work and um that was always a big shock to me and something that i've maybe found ways of integrating a more uh collective mindset into each of those spaces i recently is meeting with this incredible group. So the U.S. Department of Art and Culture, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They're not a real <laughs> government agency, but they perform really incredible service to our collective dreaming, which is they build things like the People's uh, State of the Union, or they've created the Honoring Native Land Initiative, which is an incredible toolkit for people to do land acknowledgements. And they've recently hired me to bring on a new page of this honoring native land initiative to think about how do you bring something from land acknowledgement to action? So it's not just making a verbal statement, but you're making a commitment that can come with action. And so when I was meeting with them initially, they were like, well, you know, you do categorize yourself as an artist, but this role is a lot about community building. So can you talk a little bit about that? And I thought, oh, that's so interesting because my whole life I have felt like a, more of a community builder than an artist. And that's interesting that they assume that an artist isn't a community builder because it isn't because they're usually that separation. So I was very happy to find this role. One of the fun things that you do at the beginning of working with this group is to, to work with them to define a title. And I don't have one yet. So I'm going to share with you some of my ideas. <laughs> Let me know what you think of these. So, Let's workshop them right yeah, here on the show. Right? Like, I love <laughs> your opinions because like the, the, the other people have these incredible titles. Like, like one is the chief ray of sunshine. That's one of her names. She's the chief ray of sunshine. And then one person is the director of people and possibilities. Another one is director of decolonization and honoring native land. I thought, I think that's the title. And then I've been throwing around a lot of different ones. So one I, I think was good is something around like a land acknowledgement lab, because I want to make it place where I can collaborate with lots of different people around how they can imagine and, and give a framework and tools for people to imagine how you can change land acknowledgement thinking of just something that you say to something that you do and something that has action. So that was what I've been thinking about. I don't know. What are some of the coolest titles you guys <laughs> you've ever heard? Um, well, not exactly the same thing, but a, a friend of mine, Astrid Conte, who's also one of the panelists on our podcast, she is trained as an anthropologist and she got into tech. So she and I have been workshopping a, a title for her and uh, we're coming up with like sociologist, engineer, anthropology, engineer, things like that. Because the thing I like about that and the thing I like about what you're saying is that, you know, the impact that we have is a lot broader than the work that we do. 
And um, we don't acknowledge the connections either. And we tend to lionize the pure technical, I'm speaking as like the industry, we lionize the lone um, genius like you were talking about. And um, I'd like to see us bring more of ourselves into how we describe the work we do as opposed to just the, oh, I write code, you know? So Amelia, one of the things that uh, that you and I talked about in our conversation a couple of a couple of months ago, you introduced me to a an incredible term that I'd like you to share with us and uh, and talk about, and that is antecedent technology. Yeah, I I like to think a lot about the continuous line that we have um, for technology and the way that. You know, oftentimes when we're learning about a new technology, people will use metaphors or connect it to technologies in history. But frequently it's removing, um, you know, it's from a Western perspective and rather than seeing a continuous line from technologies that were invented in indigenous communities. And one of the reasons that I, I say it's important to look at indigenous uh, antecedent technology is we don't want to colonize our future. We don't want to take something and project to the future with a limited understanding of how the world works. And an example of that is that we've had uh, for thousands of years, decentralized economies that used decentralized ledgers and had, you know, large data systems that were able to be incorporated into consensus building contracts that led to peaceful communities like for instance, wampum with the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois Confederacy, or even Kipu we had in South America, which was a Turing complete uh, data system 500 years before Alan Turing was born. So, and I think the reason why it's important is not because of primacy or saying that because something happened first, it's better. But if you are thinking of making giant leaps in the future with some of these new emerging technologies, you could say, well, we don't have any data in the past, so we're just going to have to wing it. Or you could look at it as a line and a string that connects to our ancestral histories and say, well, actually, we did have successful distributed economies, decentralized economies, right in the location where I'm standing now, we could study how they worked in, co in collaboration with the environment, this environment, and, and learn from there. Or we could just throw that out and say, wow, this is the first time California is ever going to use a decentralized economy. Let's just wing it. Or you could say, actually, there's a precedent here. And we could learn from that, right, from this very location, from this, um, this very land. And something that a lot of Indigenous activists are talking about is understanding the connection and giving back agency to Indigenous groups is not just racial just, but justice, but it's also climate justice. And so I think people who, who deeply want to make positive impact for our environment or are looking at some of these possibilities for different types of economies and a less extractive format for, for your state or for your nation or for your continent or your region, it is important to include Indigenous knowledge in, in those discussions. So that's what I mean when I talk about antecedent technology is like, are these innovations that you're building, do they have deep roots and do you have um, a mechanism of looking at them in, in historical context? Can that give you more data to make more successful models for how you might make uh, innovation in the future? But Amelia, how can people do that and also solve every problem from first principles? I know, right? <laughs> right? I know. And that's that's the funny thing is like we see this this is an issue in Silicon Valley already, right? Like already people are like, oh my gosh, they're reinventing buses or they're reinventing, you know, like these things that already existed not not a hundred or 200 or 300 years or a thousand years ago, but like people are reinventing something that happened a month ago <laughs> or a year ago, right? That is what we do. We like pile, you know, slight innovations on top of each other in an extractive format to, to create competition. And yeah, I think that it's a slowing down of that. It's like, what, what if it's not about reinvention or just rebranding re or remarketing, but if our goals have a real long vision of lasting for seven generations, can we think then about innovation in a different way? I've never heard the phrase ethical dependencies. Could you educate me if you care to? <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, I think about it like I love to use technological terminology to describe ethical or creative practices. And I love to use creative and ethical terminology to describe technological practices. I like to be a bridge between these two worlds because it's somewhere I kind of sit in the middle of. 
And so when people aren't technical and they're like, what is an ethical depend, you know, dependency, then I'll start talking to them about how certain computer programs can't run unless, you know, they have all of their check dependencies. And I kind of explain that to them. And then when it's a technical group, you know, I'll talk about when you go through your package.json and you're trying to communicate to someone who might be using you know, your your GitHub repo, you might have a bunch of different choices of things that you can connect them with in your package.json. Maybe it's just basic, hey, this is the version I'm using and, you know, make sure you use this node version. And as you go through it, the only ethical choice I've had, at least as a web developer, is like, okay, is this MIT uh, open source or is this GNU or what, like, what is the licensing for this? Is Or is it just closed source? Do I just, you know, it's for the company that I'm working for? And the reason why I, I wanted to make an ethical dependency for software is I wanted there to be more options and more choices there that you could say, not only do I have a you know license, which really is just adjudicated through you know the legal process of international law of copyright. Like if someone violates the MIT license and closed sources my open source project, maybe I can sue them, right? But if I'm a small developer, I'm probably don't have the resources to sue people. But what if I don't even believe in that process? Like I'm somebody who truly believes in um, like a horizontal organization that is a mutual aid network, and we don't want to spend our funds on lawyers suing people. But we do want to have a way in which our community is held responsible to each other, right? Like maybe we have our own process of guidelines that this group adheres to. And we want a resource where people can say, okay, what are the values behind your code that you imagine people should uphold? And in my article that I wrote for the Mozilla blog, I mentioned an example, which is like a cat shelter. Like what if I made a really great website for my friend's cat shelter? And then they reach out to me and say, hey, my other friend would really love to use your code. Is, is that totally fine? Yeah, it's open source. No problem. Okay, great, great, great. And then I say, well, actually, you know, I, I did a lot of work on this. I'm totally fine. Anyone using it for free, but I don't support kill shelters, right? Like if, if it's a no kill shelter, then they're totally cool with them using my code. But if they're not a no kill shelter, I don't know if I wanted to spend all those hours that I did making this and the time supporting it and everything else that I do, I, I don't like, that's my values. Like you can use my code for free, but like not if you're using it to do something that I don't want to see in the world. Right. And I think we see that a lot in open source projects for, for research where researchers have done incredible systems for looking at the stars and star mapping. And then those same systems are used in, you know, for, for military guided missiles. And they're like, wait a minute, I, you know, I, I used all those graduate students and I we, we spent years and years and years building this incredible thing to to look at stars and have this be an educational tool. And now it's being used in a way that is, is absolutely not how we anticipated or what we thought would exist in the world. And there's not a mechanism because they didn't close necessarily close source it. They're just using it as a guidance system. <laughs> so it's like, how, how could you hold people accountable? And I think the first step is to make explicit the values to begin with, right? And a lot of times people will say to me, well, if you can't enforce this, then what what is the point of doing this? And I think that's an interesting thing in our culture that we immediately go to policing before we can even think of the imagination of like, what what is our value? Like, oh, you're not even allowed to think of what your values are because if you can't police them, they don't matter. Well, that's actually a very strange uh, skewed worldview to imagine that you can't hold values unless you can police them because in, in a world of post-policing, we have to have ways that we hold values, right? <laughs> like we can't just throw out values. <laughs> So the first step is like articulating um, and agreeing upon the values and creating an, an ethical dependency. And then I, through the process in wampum.codes, I talk about how accountability can work within a community and what you want accountability to look like. It shouldn't be the default that the only way you can hold someone accountable is to sue them or is to police them through a court system or international court system. There should be a way in which you can hold people accountable that is more aligned with the values of your group. Maybe you can say, you know, if you have found someone that has not followed these ethical guidelines, invite them to this town hall where we'd like to talk about it or meet us every week at the Zoom link. There's lots of different ways you can kind of put an accountability link in your package.json, which is like, this is how I expect my community can hold me accountable. This is how I want my community to hold me accountable. This is how I want my community to hold each other accountable. And so we talk through that process. It should, I don't think it should just be a default outsourced thing to a government that you have no influence on the copyright law that exists. Like, well, it's either open or closed. Okay. So that's a, now I've kind of lost my place, but feel free to ask a question. 
follow-up question. These guys have to stop fighting. I really like the distinction that you make between policing and accountability, which I think are words that have like similar meanings, but very different vibes. (laughs) And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how those two concepts like work different in practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you can imagine that it's, I mean, we always, I always start from a point of imagining that it's a community, that we are all part of a community and that we care about the values and we care about each other, right? Like you're starting from a point of imagining everyone's a good actor before you start imagining how someone is a bad actor. It's like saying, I need to explain to you why this game is fun and what the rules are before I start. If I start off being like, okay, everyone who's going to cheat at this game is this is the things that's going to happen to them. Then people are like, well, wait, what game is this? <laughs> and what even are the rules, right? So just kind of start from a point of like, this is why the game is fun. This is why we want to participate in it. These are the rules of the game. And the rules are part of how we have fun, right? The rules are part of how we engage with each other. The rules are part of the point of why we're even playing. Like, this is, it makes it fun. Constraints are fun. And then you can start thinking about like, hey, and if you cheat at this game, these are the fun ways you can cheat at this game. And these are the ways that like are actually not fun and everyone in the group would rather you just not do that. And if you do do that, then maybe we talk about how, what we do, right? And so I think that's a more of a process of thinking about like, the ideas and the end and the means exist within the community and are part of the community. And I think a lot of activist organizations have been very involved in, in rethinking community accountability without policing. And oftentimes there are communities that either like indigenous communities on reservations don't have policing in the same way that other spaces do and or they're places where policing has not does not benefit those communities right like they're not the they're not actually defending the the rights or the needs or of those communities so they've had to start thinking about like well yeah we still have to think about what we do when we have and uh something in our community that we don't want to have like if we have domestic violence what do we do in a way that still protects and maintains our community that we can still make sure we have help and needs and that's an issue that i think a lot of reservations have looked at because it's like we don't have police or 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 police don't help us when they come. And so how do we figure out ways that we can support um, our communities and make sure that um, we can minimize domestic violence and they have lots of different initiatives all over Indian country that are really amazing. So I think that's a good example. I find it really refreshing the attitude about like the game, like these are the rules of the game before we talk about cheating, because like I find myself feeling a way that's kind of jaded. That's like, Um, like my brain does kind of go to like, but I know there's bad actors and like I've dealt with bad actors and I like stress about that. And like, I mean, I think it's a stressful thing that like is reasonable to stress about, but like putting that value lower than the value of like, well, what's the ideal and like, how do we start with that? I think it's really feels good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know as a young developer and probably all of you have had a very similar experience but as a very young developer you'll enter into a space and be like oh I have a question about this and then you just get like that hammer on your head of like this isn't the space where you ask questions that's the space where you ask questions and you don't ask this question on a Tuesday you only ask it on a Wednesday and you're like ah, you know and so we've all had that experience too which isn't a very accessible way of like you know someone wants to join your party and you're like oh you're only allowed to join on Wednesdays and not with that question and you know it's like so I think it's important to make things accessible to someone who's a new or an outsider and give them a way of being a good actor. Cause otherwise if they don't, then everyone new will be a bad actor, right. Without any option of otherwise. Right. And of course there are bad actors. We've all like grown up on the internet. So, like, <laughs> but yeah. And another thing that is interesting is I've been doing these workshops with, development teams, you know, at, at companies, startup, you know, blockchain companies or, or financial companies or nonprofits or academic departments or groups of artists. And it is always interesting that people are like, oh, yeah, who who should be here that can articulate our values for this exercise? And my answer is you, you know, right. And they're like, oh, well, no one, no one gave me like permission to, to do that for on behalf of like, I don't know, on behalf of who? And I'm like, well, you get to do it on behalf of everyone. Like you get to articulate it and then someone else gets to articulate it. And then we get to talk about that. And I think I'm always surprised that this is sometimes the first space that anyone's given them that permission, 
you know, it's like, well, what do you think are the values? It's like, well, I think our values are X, Y, and Z. And someone else can say, well, I think it's this other thing. And they can say, oh, interesting. And then the founders or the directors can be there and be like, wow, I had no, I, I had no idea all these differing opinions. And then we'll say to them, well, what did you think it was? They're like, I, I actually, now I realize, I don't know. Now I'm liking these ideas or, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this differently. So it's kind of square one is that articulation. And everyone thinks that that's a given. They're like, oh, well, that'll be easy. That part will take like five minutes. But that is almost the entire time usually is that beginning of like, okay, we are articulating our values. Then once you articulate them, it's actually quite easy to just embed those into your source code and then think about accountability and all that. But like getting on that same page, it's often the first time that, and and, and coders will say things like, well, I think, I think the UX person was supposed to decide this. UX person said, no, 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 I don't think it was me. I think it was somebody else who was supposed to decide this. I'm like, well, if actually no one on your development team thinks they're allowed to express this, then that's probably a problem, right? Because how are they supposed to design code that meets the, your values of your team if no one thinks it's they're allowed to articulate that, right? Something I find striking about the story that you just told is that I think we often feel like disagreements are like a really bad thing to have. And you just told a story where like having disagreements were like a, was a very good thing to be experiencing because it's like more ideas and like more discussion. And I wonder what your thoughts are on like, well, how can we get past that feeling that like, oh, well, if someone disagrees with me, like that's a bad thing. I think it's different for different people, right? Like I, I think all of us have probably worked on international teams. I work on a, a t- international team where I have a lot of um, German coworkers and they're not in any way afraid of disagreeing in the beginning of a meeting, but they are very hesitant to disagree later on. They have this great way of like clashing in the beginning with lots of ideas. Like, no, I don't think that they're really, really clashing in the beginning. But then once we've all agreed to move forward with something, then they would be more hesitant later on to be like, hey, hey, I don't think this is working out because they're kind of like, nope, we made a commitment. We're going to do this. We'll just keep doing what we decided. It's harder for them later on to to like flag a problem and say, I think we should go in a different direction because it's more, it's less part of their culture to to do that. It's like, well, we all agreed. So if we all agreed and we're all together, then we all agree and we're all together. We don't, you don't later go on and decide something else on your own. Whereas I feel like in American culture, it's not as big of a deal for someone to raise their hand and be like, hey, I think we're going to go into a brick wall if we keep going this direction. So we got to veer to the left. Everyone will be like, thank goodness. But if you showed up at the brick wall, they'd be like, why didn't anyone, oh, we knew we were going to run the brick wall. Why didn't you say anything? Oh, we didn't want to disagree. Like that wouldn't be appropriate in American culture, but they make a jokes all the time in Germany that like, that's what happens sometimes because people agree and then they'll just keep going. So it's a very interesting kind of clash of culture. So I think different cultures have different points at which they feel comfortable. I mean, that's just one example. You can imagine how like all of us have so many different cultures um, when it, it feels okay to have disagreements. And sometimes explaining that in the beginning could be helpful too. Cause like in some of these groups, you'll have people that are international that are speaking more in the beginning. And I'll call that out too and say, you know, I hear a lot of Europeans are disagreeing in the beginning, you know, oftentimes Americans don't feel comfortable doing that, but this is a helpful way of kind of making sure we have alignment and it's not seen as a, that you think someone's idea is not good, but it's a way of contributing or adding. So sometimes I kind of throw that out because I know different even based on different parts of the U.S. that you're in, you might have different ways that when you feel more comfortable sharing a, a descending opinion, right? And Amelia, how does that intersect with permission to be wrong? Oh, I like that permission to be wrong. Tell me a little bit more about that. What do you? What uh, do you? I think it's uh, it's kind of tied to uh, to what we talk about a lot about psychological safety and safety to fail. Yeah, um, you know, things don't always fail just for environmental reasons. Oh, yeah. Sometimes someone had an idea and it ends up that idea isn't workable. But we have such an attachment to the idea that I think we we oftentimes are likely to, to run into that wall because we don't want to admit that we didn't think of something or we didn't see something coming or we didn't think it through correctly. And um, that that's a lot of pressure. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. You know, I, I guess I, I feel like I find that a lot when I was a, a professor and I'm, you know, I still am a trainer. I work um, at Ken Temple as a technical trainer. And I think as a teacher, you see that a lot with people. It's like that first moment where students have learned something and they want to apply it. And 
uh, sometimes our first idea is great, and but usually our first twenty ideas are terrible, right? So it's like when you first learn something, you know, you don't always you don't always have the best ideas. And what I usually have tried to do in my classrooms is give people uh, just an an enormous space to create a lot of bad ideas quickly. So if it's in an art class, I might say, okay, I've taught you how to do this animation. I need you to make a hundred in the next hour. And they're like, that's impossible. I'm like, well then make them really bad and really crude and really just, you know, find out how to do volume. And when you find out how to do volume, you kind of get over a lot of the like preciousness of the first bad idea that is usually really bad, but you're really precious about it because it's your first. Um, and that kind of can push past that. And similarly, in, in, in technical training classes, it might be the same where it's like, okay, all 50 of you have to do this impossible task in an hour. And they're like, that's impossible. I'm like, great. So let's start with where should we start? And often the where should we start is a bad idea. People are like, we should start with writing down everything that we need to do. It's like, well... If you only have an hour, that's probably going to be the hour of just writing it down. Or you could start somewhere, you know, like there's lots of different options. So I think the permission to fail um, or permission for bad ideas sometimes can be overcome by like that brute force of just being like, well, do the first hundred bad ideas, get it out of your system. (laughs) I was just thinking about how I've worked in an organization in the past that really wanted to have that very collaborative, be on the same page about values and I think there was one issue that came up a lot, which was that we had this culture where if anyone wanted to sort of like blow up the entire thing and make us all talk about it from ground zero, they could. And I think that whether on purpose or not was abused. And what, what we ended up happening was like not really able to go anywhere. And effectively what happened was the person who wanted to just keep bringing up their thing got their way. You yeah, know, because we want, you know. So yeah, I, I when you were talking about that earlier, I I was thinking about like what are what are what's a way for like one of the values of a, of a group to be like we we want to be able to have everyone's input. But we also want to move forward, and yeah, I've, I've just been thinking about how we would do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, I think this is why so many mutual aid networks or activist groups or anarchist groups will use different formats, like even Robert's Rules of Order, or they make their own versions of that where they say, and then I've seen in some uh, like anarchist groups, they'll have sort of like the 10 sort of not commandments, but like, you know, things on the wall where if a certain thing in a conversation is going there, they might point to it and say like, hey, is this number eight derailment? Like, are you derailing our consensus through number seven, like only being concerned with your own idea? And then everyone will be like, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's what you're doing. You're number seven and number eighting right now. So we're going to move past that. Or with Robert's rules, you might say like, yeah, your motion's on the table, doesn't have a second. So we're tabling that by, you know, And I think that's why it's important to kind of have some of those ground rules when you're in an activist organization or if, you know, and maybe we should take some of those activist language into the product space um, at companies as well to say, like, we can have formalized ways. It doesn't mean we're not listening to people. Like there's a balance between you're never allowed to question our values or, yeah, you can bring up your own pet project at any time and derail everyone else's process and project and progress. So I think there's definitely a a balance there and people can always make addendums to that, right? Like people can say, hey, we're going to pause Robert Rolls right now because it looks like we're getting kicked out of this space in five minutes. So we're going to move to this section. Does everyone agree with that? Yes, we agree with tabling those rules that we already agreed to, to make a supplemental rule for this section. And I mean, I don't know how many of you have worked in activist organizations. Sounds like all of you, so you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Like sometimes it's a lot of saying that and saying it really fast, but you get used to it. You get used to being like, oh my gosh, we only have five minutes. Okay. Should we table this? Yes or no. Do we have a second? Okay. We do great. You know, like, yeah, it takes more verbiage, but it is a way that we can agree on the rules of play and that people feel safe being like, yeah, no one seconded that idea. You have brought it up for the third time. You bring it up again. No one's going to second it again. So you know, it's okay. We get it. You still want that idea. That's okay. We're writing it down in the minutes, but you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> You're also welcome to start your own like group and have that be like a focus. And that's always possible too. So not everything has to be done by, for, with, and with approval of the group. Um, and I think that's what's great too. So Amelia, you were talking earlier in the show about your no funding group that's what it was called right 
Yeah. And the phrase that you said, I, I wrote it down, was no striving, no hustling. Yeah. And I liked that so much that I wrote it down. And I was hoping we could talk about that because I think that that's something that people really struggle with, too. Um, this, like, pro- like, anxiety about productivity and, like, monetizing hobbies is something I see a lot. Um, I'm also in kind of the tech space and the art space, and you see that a lot in, like, comics, like, how can I make this thing that I want to do into my career, which, like, there's something beautiful about that, but it's also really tough when you're doing that with, like, everything in your life that should bring you joy. And so this isn't really a question, but I was hoping you could talk about no striving, no hustling. Oh, yeah. (laughs) so much Jamie um so like our little like I'll I'll read you like the little statement that we made just because it's funny but we say no funding be the crypto anarchist digital artist colony you want to see in the world it's a mutual aid network that aims to help creatives radically rethink our relationship to funding grants and gatekeepers in an arts and media culture increasingly focused on securing patronage from institutions corporations and wealthy individuals no funding asks what creative life would look like if artists were fully liberated from money and the self censorship imposed by its pursuit. Rather than experience the soul-crushing lifestyle of striving, rejection, and constant jockeying for position, could we instead find new ways to support one another, and what would we make? As part of the official announcement, I wrote a short story called Child's Play, where I imagine a world in which children seize control of the global economy with nothing more than a Minecraft server and their grandparents' goodwill. Um, No Funding is a public group. You can visit no-funding.com to get in on the fun and participate in weekly online conversations where members present on topics near and dear to them. No Funding is primarily a BIPOC creative technologist group, but it's open to anyone who's ever needed a day job to make something cool that they believe in our motto is no striving no hustling no funding.com a creative collective so that's our little statement i love it i love everything about it (laughs) yeah i've had a lot of fun because you know i don't know how you felt during the pandemic but i feel like adrift in a sea of information where i don't know where land is i don't see like a lighthouse i can't tell if i'm like five minutes from shore or a five miles and having a, a check-in with people with this format that it's like no striving no hustling like it's you're not pitching your project for a group of adjudicators right like this is like a group of, of people for people by people and i've been able to get more of a temperature on like how people are feeling, what people are thinking. Um, for me, it's helped been like that lighthouse of how far I am adrift. Like when I have my own notions of, I think this is going on. And then I go to a no funding meeting and I'm like, okay, I'm totally wrong. <laughs> you know, I kind of see, I can like adjust myself to the shore. So for me, it's been, it's been really helpful in that way. I think that there's kind of two pieces of what you just described that are, have a similar result, but are different, which is like, trying to get funding because we live in capitalism and you need money to survive and to do things, which like sucks and is hard. And then on the other side, I think you have just like this feeling about like whether or not you're being productive in that way. Like even if an artist doesn't need to make money off of something to like pay their bills I think there's like a feeling of like but if I'm not making money then like it's not valuable or it's not real or it's not as valuable as something else that someone else is working on and actually that is also capitalism that made that happen but I think that's like more a little bit more solvable maybe like we can't really it's hard for us to just decide that we're gonna have like a community without like that kind of like global economy but I think we could decide that like we're not gonna hold ourselves to that in the way that we do but that's like a tough step to take I think and it sounds like you have a whole group of people that have all taken that step yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's pretty incredible I mean I think you know we're all very diverse and don't agree on a lot of things but the one thing that we do agree on is that the definition of having a full and creative life is only available to someone who who does never need to work right and that's at that Either even if there are people in our group who that might be true for, we all agree that that's not true. That you can have a full creative life and do many different jobs at many different times in your life for many different reasons. And that that is the one thing that we've committed to is like having a day job doesn't kick you out of of the club of being an activist, a creative, uh, a dreamer, a thinker, and 
and a world that that exists is a world that is actually quite creatively stifling, right? <laughs> it's very stifling. And we see that um, it ends up just reproducing a lot of commonality and there's only a small demographic of people then who get to participate in it and they have a very small, narrow grasp on the world. And I think we see that in a lot of our media, right? That it, in order to participate in media, you have to be independently wealthy enough that you don't need to make any money from it. And then those people tend to be a very small, narrow demographic. And then you say, why do we have all of our stories are told from this one perspective? It's like, well, those are the only people that are allowed to do that work um, because it requires a full time job where you don't make money, then yeah, of course you're going to get the same group of people that are going to tell those stories then. And so that's why we think about it of like, well, what could we make if we assume we have day jobs, if we assume we don't need money, if what, like what kind of projects can we make together or how can we support each other and each other's projects all coming from a notion of like, there's not someone coming to save us and we're not looking to grab the attention of someone high up there. Um, rather we're looking to our right and to our left of us at the people that are standing beside us and saying, how do we move forward? I find that incredibly inspiring and empowering. And it's something I think about something similar that I think about in comics a lot where like people who are new to comics are often trying to like get in with people that are already like names in comics and like, really talented people that have like, of course you want to work with those people, but you know, those people are kind of like doing something different than you if you're just a beginner. And I heard the advice when I was kind of new, that's like, Hey, you know, don't reach out to me, reach out to people that like your peers, because like me and my peers used to be like that. And we all kind of like became successful together. And like, what you need to do is like make a group like that. And then you become successful together. And like, I've thought about that a ton since I heard it. And I think like I'm getting a similar vibe from what you're talking about. And I think it's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. You know, that was, it, you're like literally described the exact impetus for me forming this is I, I get <laughs> a lot of talks weekly at universities. And I had so many students after my talks be like, can we grab coffee? I'd love to pick your brain. And I look at my schedule and unfortunately just because, you know, I have like a, a full-time uh, startup job and I do lots of a advocacy and activism on the side. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be able to meet with you in like three months. And that's not, that's not good, right? Like I want to be able to, to give more time to these people who have really valid questions. But I also don't think that I hold anything that they need. Like, I don't think that I'm the person standing in the path for their progression and I need to give them a hand up. In fact, I think what I do need to do is to give them a space where they can communicate with their peers, like you said. So, and I, I say that to them, I say, look, I'm not brushing you off because you're not important. I'm, I'm taking myself out of this equation because I'm not important. And you don't need me to tell you how to move forward, but you do need your peers. And luckily, I've collected all of you from all of my talks into a group that meets weekly and you can all talk to each other, which is a much more valuable thing. And I facilitate this. I've created this as a way of you know giving you a Zoom link that everyone can connect to each week, but you're going to connect with each other and you're going to meet hundreds of people around the world that that are your peers that will be your network, that will be your the person to your left and to your right. And, and I always say to people, if you look to your left and your right and you don't see anyone, that's because there's somebody behind you you need to pull up, that you need to give a hand to. So, yeah. I, uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, thinking and talking about storytelling and the value that I, value I place in storytelling and um, also thinking about like, how can I give agency to other people to tell their stories? Um, but one of the things that struck me when I was thinking about storytelling is, uh, for example, look at superheroes. Almost every white superhero is a lone actor. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have a community connection. They don't have a family. They all died in a, in a yeah. terrible accident. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's the kind of stories we tell. And that's kind of what we're telling people. You have to be the hero. You have to be the most famous. You have to be the most rich. And I learned um, there's actually a, a name for different kinds of stories. There's a German word for it called Bildungsroman. And I'm probably pronouncing that all wrong. But uh, this, is, this is more what our stories used to be like. And it was about the entire story would be about the development of the hero. And it's not like the hero's journey, like a Joseph Campbell thing. It's literally like how they learn how to be who they are. And um, we don't tell those stories. Or they're, they're an origin story that's highly dramatic and left behind. As opposed to like acknowledging that uh, we're all flawed and that hopefully we're all growing 
and that hopefully we'll just be better people and that's enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my son, when he was a, a, a baby, used to hate like Disney movies because he would say they always have like the mom or the dad always dies. Something bad always happens to them in the beginning. And then the rest of the story is like running from a trauma to find a perfect ending. And this is like a four-year-old telling me this. So I'm like, yeah, I mean, that is that is the, the problem with the Western myth of like the origin story, you know? And he was like, but I want to just watch Friends having fun together, telling each other jokes, going on a journey. Like, I want it to look like my life. I want to see stories that look like my life. And I'm like, yeah, well, you you probably will find your stories in other spaces. And he did. He finds like Minecraft, right? Which is much more of a similar thing to his experiences. Like, we're collectively building our story through participating in a in a world on a server that we've negotiated the terms of, right? And that's that's his fictional world and he still is that way right like his generation is still that way the zoomers i think tell stories in a more interactive and collective format and they're not as interested in media that comes from a single voice which i think is cool <laughs> so. i read some discourse recently about like studio ghibli movies and people were talking about like you know well, studio ghibli movies don't really have conflict and I thought that was confusing because, like, obviously there's lots of conflict in many of them. There's, like, lots of problems, and they solve the problems. And I think that the thing that people mean when they say that isn't that there's actually no conflict. It's that there's room in those stories for, like, quiet moments of reflection. And that makes people feel like it's not conflict because you're having that space to kind of sit with it and think about it and then, like, continue. And I think that's what is so relaxing about them. It's like people feel like I'm relaxed and so it's not like stressful and it's not conflict, but it's like giving yourself space to, I don't know, I already said what I was going to say. So oh, that's, that's really beautiful. And I, I met this screenwriter once when I was in um, LA and, you know, I, I, I was really surprised by his point of view because he said a lot of people think that drama is violence uh, aggression, death, hardship. And he says the best drama that most people want to watch is a good person has to make a tough decision. And I just loved that statement because it's true. Like that, that kind of drama is, it doesn't have to just be this, this doom and gloom where I'm taking, I'm taking and trauma and trauma there. Like the, the concept that as soon as he just said that phrase to me, I was like, tell me more. What is this story? You know, like I was like, tell me, I want to know at the end of your story. He's like, no, no, that's every story I tell on TV. That is my story is like, you know, he's like, that's why we love hospital dramas. Right. Because it's like these good, these doctors, they need to make a tough decision. And it, it is, it does have life or death consequences, but they're saving lives. Right? Like the core concept is not about death and destruction and violence. The core concept is about them trying to save a life and make a tough decision. And people love that, right? So the, the concept that, that people only like entertainment that is that has a lot of, uh, of violence or trauma in it is, is like, okay, that's true. And actually people love to see so, a good person making a tough decision. So I, I always remember that when I think about storytelling. Amelia, I really appreciate your sharing with us your story. Today. And I think it's, uh, it's very inspiring. And I think it's also really wonderful that it seems to connect to other things. It's not, it's not just your story. It's a collective story, but you are a, a force for bringing those stories to life. And I really appreciate that. giving people the space to tell those stories and to live those stories. Oh, awesome. So I see, thank you so much, Coraline. And I see that uh, Jamie said that thought of the, the name of the, yeah, the term I was looking for is ma. I don't actually know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, even though it's only two letters ma, but it's like a Japanese word for negative space. And like negative space is so important in design and like white space is important in code. And the idea of like negative space being important, like in a story, I think is really valuable. I think that's really beautiful. And I think as, as the collective, as a collective, we always move slower and we move at the speed of the community and it changes the, the speed or the, the way in which we tell stories, but it doesn't, it changes the value, I think, in a positive way. Like we, those of us who want to connect to our community can then see stories that reflect our own reality. 
So I think that's really beautiful. Maybe the the ma or the space within community storytelling will be defined and have its own term someday, right? That'd be cool. Maybe the kids from your story at the very beginning who made up the rock hand word will come up with a word for it for us. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Absolutely. Amelia, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. What a beautiful conversation and a a beautiful afternoon conversation for me. So thank you for making uh, sunshine happen for the rest of my day. Thank you so much. This is really great. (laughs) 